Okay, are you recording again? Now I am. I am now recording again. Okay, take two. Here we go. Take two. Here we go. Yes. Uh, we got about five minutes into recording there, had a real good flow going on, and then my iPad just said no. So here we go again. Take two. Welcome back to Imagination Land, Friend to Friend in the End Time, episode eight. Today we have Chris Tenerowitz, guitarist for Self Defense Family. End of a year, he played guitar and trumpets for Aficionado, and he's played in a couple of for a couple of his own solo projects, both on guitar and synths, as Twin Cisterns and The Visitors. I sound like I'm rushing over this a little <laughs> bit, but I'm I'm just trying to get back into the good stuff. Uh, I am going to bring up the anecdote that we were just talking about about um, uh, my friend Luke, who's teaching me how to play guitar. He mentioned that every good band needs uh, one person who really knows um, what's going on, who knows why things are happening. And then if they have that, everybody else can just fumble along with them. He described Chris Tenerowitz as the one who knows in self-defense family, which is really cool. I'm really looking forward to talking about that. Lovely day you're having in uh, New Mexico, you were telling me. We can hear the birds chirping. We'll go back to talking about New Mexico in a little bit. We've got some outdoorsy stuff to talk about a little bit later, but I don't want you to feel like you're treading over common ground. Beautiful. So yeah, let's go again. Before we get into the nitty gritty, let's set the scene and go back to the start. For over a decade, you've been playing music and the projects that I rushed over earlier. Between these projects, yeah, <laughs> you've been involved in the creation of countless records in a variety of formats, 10 inches, 7 inches, 12 inches, etc. Um, okay, so let's find out where your interest in music began. Did you start via the guitar? Can you talk, talk me through from the beginning to the point where you felt you had established yourself as a musician? Yeah, absolutely. So like, um, I don't know, I feel like most, you know, kind of kids growing up, you know, kind of like in the U.S. in some kind of like normal middle class school system, like you always have a band program and you always start out playing like trumpet or clarinet or something along those lines. Um, you know, so like kind of going back to the, the super beginning, that is absolutely like my first exposure to music and like notes and creating music was playing trumpet. Um, you know, from a very young age, but my older brother had always, uh, his name is Matt, he had always played in, um, you know, kind of punk and indie bands, hardcore bands in Columbia County, in the New York area. I would always be like the annoying little brother tagging along to either their, you know, rehearsals or like a show at a DIY space or something like that. So that was really kind of like my first, you know, exposure and, you know, kind of potential attraction to, you know, playing guitar, you know. So, um, yeah, I would say that was probably the beginning of it, just kind of wanting to, to be like him and kind of copy him. So I probably started playing guitar when I was younger, maybe around, uh, I want to say probably 10 or 11, something like that. Oh, wow. And that was kind of my first introduction into those things. And I'm sorry, there are some church bells kind of chiming off in the background there, so <laughs> my apologies it's all good. for that. <laughs> As we were saying earlier, the ambiance. So when did you start going to DIY shows then? You mentioned that you were looking up to your brother Matt, etc. How old were you when you started going to these shows and finding out about these bands and things like that? 
Yeah, for sure. So, like, I would say I, I was definitely not able to drive yet. I remember getting rides up to Albany from Hudson, New York, which is only, like, a 45-minute drive. But I remember, like, older neighbors, like, uh, um, you know, kind of giving me rides to that. My mom always being like, okay, cool, you're going to go up with Sam. He's going to give you a ride back at the end of the night, you know. You know, very, you know, kind of cool scenario to be in as, like, a 14-year-old, you know, to be able to kind of go up and not have your mom, like, just kind of waiting for you, you know, sitting over by the merch or something like that. Although that did happen many times. Um, my mother and my father were both, you know, incredibly supportive and sweet in that way and would absolutely, uh, you know, kind of drive us to shows and wait for us and wait for it to be over. And, you know, we're absolutely fantastic in that way. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, started going to DIY shows. There was a classic venue called Mother Earth's Cafe in Albany, New York. And some of the earliest shows that I went to, there's a, a hardcore band based out of Albany called Endicott. And um, going to Endicott shows and just seeing all the various, you know, kind of support bands playing that was some of my earliest exposures to like going to a hardcore show going to a show, you know, kind of, like, meeting people at a show, you know, making friends and, like, within, like, the so-called, like, DIY scene and things like that. Um, yeah, so that exposure, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily earlier than most people, but, you know, from, like, a, you know, 15, 14, 16-year-old kind of, um, you know, age group, probably, for sure. Sure, sure. And uh, what, what kind of hardcore was this band? That's a good question. Like, so I've always been playing, I've, I've been, like, adjacent to hardcore music my whole life and I would say that end of a year when I first started playing with end of a year was like punk or hardcore I am like a pure idiot when it comes <laughs> to classifying you know kind of subculture and, and, and subgenres of music I have never been like a giant hardcore enthusiast in terms of you know kind of um, really kind of getting in depth with the genre um, I remember at times being on tour with end of a year and Sean Duty and Patrick would be in the van talking about bands and to me it was like they were just naming dozens of bands that I just had never heard of in my entire life you know I was always you know from like a younger age I think I really dodged a bullet in terms of like becoming a weird tasteless <laughs> like cl like classic rock guy because when I was learning guitar I was super into so like I took lessons from this guy Phil and he was lovely and he was you know obviously like way into Eric Clapton um, you know, classic rock, you know, was a, a very formative thing for me. Um, so I feel like I was like really teetering on the edge of like becoming like a cover band guy wow. for like a very long time, you know. And fortunately, I think that never happened. Not, you know, kind of denigrating anybody out there that plays in a cover band and, you know, kind of enjoys it. Um, but um, I've always kind of walked this weird rail between like, being around hardcore music but like not really you know becoming entrenched in it or you know kind of um you know becoming uh you know like you know really into it in a way i always just appreciated being at the shows playing music i remember um end of year playing back when the band was end of year or it might have been end of year self-defense family at that time kind of doing like the hybrid name stage and we played a show at abc no rio and it was like one of my first exposure to like I remember Pat and, and Hans and Sean Duty were absolutely cracking up because it was like a Canadian crust punk band um, that was 
like talking about like killing police officers you know things that like to me are like a normal like i've been very exposed to that now and i'm like oh yeah hell yeah let's kill some cops but um at the time when i was like 18 being like these guys are talking about killing cops like are you guys did you guys hear those lyrics you know and um just being a complete kind of fish out of water in some of those scenarios so yeah um yeah, I would not say I'm a, I'm a hardcore guy, or do, or nor do I have much of a history steeped in that, but I've always been around it. Sure, sure. And uh, just for the sake of clearing things up, if my employer ever hears this podcast, these are these aren't these aren't my words. I'm just uh, I'm just listening. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely not. Just conducting the interview. Exactly, exactly. Okay, let's dive more into some of your earlier influences in and being more specific about them you were talking about how you managed to avoid being a cover band guy and uh sure being a cover band guy is all well and good for people in their 50s who like being in cover bands but you're not going to do anything with your life outside of playing weddings and parties in a cover (laughs) band which might be totally satisfying for some people yeah sure which, yeah, I want to be clear. If, you, if you're just living your life and you are getting together with the guys and, like, doing good covers of, like, you know, cream songs, then I, I think that you are living a beautiful truth. And God bless you, because that, that can just be a good thing. Yeah, to be fair, those people can totally avoid all subculture drama. Right. And just, <laughs> and just go for beers every weekend. Like, fair enough to them. Um, so, so let's talk about some of your early influences and then the influences going into end of a year, end of a year, self-defense family, etc. Sure. I'm talking both the well-known artists that connect punk and indie musicians like, I don't know, like Fugazi, etc. to the more niche or maybe even the more local acts like you were talking about earlier that would have been an influence to you and your peers as you were making music early on. Cause, um, this might sound like the stupidest thing in the world to to people who properly live the life, but from a casual observer from across the pond who's only been to New York like twice maybe, it seems like bands in New York, and I, I'm assuming you were you were around Albany early on, and nearby New Jersey, I know New Jersey's fairly nearby because uh, my, my dad lives out there, it's not amazingly close but it's it's sure uh, they seem to have had a pretty outsized influence on recent punk and hardcore i mean i'm talking like last 15 years kind of thing and the culture in general is this, is this something you felt as you were growing up yeah absolutely i would say that like you know new york um was was very significant in you know kind of like like a formative aspect for like me and playing music and also you know, uh, like, you know, kind of commenting on, like, you know, music scenes in general, um, because New York was not far from Albany. So, like, when I was playing in Aficionado and end of the year, uh, getting down to New York to play shows was, like, an absolutely huge part of, like, the monthly kind of weekend plans. So, like, we would always go down and, you know, play at various venues um, with either of those bands, and that was, like, a very, very common thing to do. So kind of, like, you know, living in and... Uh, you know, kind of being close, you know, well, living in New York and being close to New York City, it was a very common thing to be able to kind of pop down there, um, you know, play a show at, you know, at like a classic venue, like uh, ABC No Rio or something like that, and then be able to kind of return back up to upstate New York after that. So, yeah, I mean, I I would say, 
you know, New York City in general, you know, is, you know, kind of one of those like cultural touchstones for the U.S., you know, same thing for like the scene in Los Angeles, scene in the Northwest, you know, things like along those lines, like there's definitely like a few that kind of form those kind of big nodes. And then, you know, you kind of have the smaller areas in between that all kind of have their own local flavor, you know, their own like local heroes, like the bands that kind of come out of those scenes that, you know, you know, become very formative in terms of like how an area sounds and, you know, kind of what you think of, like when you go to Buffalo, New York, for example, or something like that, even though it's not New York City, it's got its own, you know, kind of legends and story to it for sure. Um, and what what kind of bands were part of your legends and stories and your formative tastes? During the time that Aficionado was playing shows, we were always, you know, kind of, you know, floating around with, uh, there was a band called Sergeant Dunbar and the Hobo Band that was also like a similar kind of like large music collective. And, you know, Aficionado had like a lot of members, um, you know, I think at the at the most we had like nine at once or something like that. Um, and uh, that other band, Sergeant Dunbar, was kind of like a similar thing. So, yeah, there was always, um, you know, kind of this presence of like large groups of musicians. And actually, I was talking to Alan earlier today, and he, and he kind of called Self-Defense Family a modular band, kind of like borrowing, you know, like a modular synthesizer type description. Um, and I remember always kind of being associated in these music scenes with these groups that had a lot of people, and they might not play every show, but there was always this kind of like push and pull and kind of ebb and flow to the number of folks that would, you know, kind of participate in what was exactly going on. So, um, you know, I would say that was definitely, you know, something that was kind of big uh, within Albany for a while. I'm sure it was kind of big, you know, kind of nationwide, um, you know, uh, World Infernal Friendship Society, you know, like all those bands. What was the band with the one that was like a total kind of cult leader vibe? Um, they all wore white. St. Vincent played in that band. Uh, um, polyphonic spree is who I'm thinking of. So like that style of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of creating music from that collected sense was was absolutely a big thing when I was in college, for sure. That's really interesting because um, up until I was doing my research on, uh, like I did a little bit of research last night to make sure that I came prepared for this interview. I'd known that you'd played an aficionado, which as I oh. mentioned earlier, didn't quite make it across the pond in the same way that Self-Defense Family did. Sorry, like I can find Self-Defense Family people in the UK in the same way I might not be able to find uh, aficionado people that you would be able to find in America. Sure. It was a weird surprise to see, oh, that band had 10 members too. Right. <laughs> I, I always found it really interesting that uh, Self-Defense Family have done this revolving door cast of players. And uh, actually that leads me on nicely into the question I had next, focusing on Self-Defense Family in particular and how you've used this approach with the countless members that you've had and how it's allowed you to pump out releases like there's no tomorrow really especially well it would have been last year now when the pandemic had just started mm -hmm. and you managed to put out a, a record a week for about a month and a half or some, something along those lines yeah which was really really cool so yeah to, talking on that front you already had a fair few releases under your belt at the time but it seems like it's really picked up since the release of try me at the end of 2013 with members all over the place, we're going to touch on a few different topics here. Sorry, this is this is going to sound like it's jumping about. Not a problem. You've got members all, all over the place. You seem to enjoy recording in unconventional ways. Can you tell me about how all these processes work when you have so many people? How you're able to write so many different releases to be recorded and put out 
in such a sporadic fashion with so many different people, how you figure out who plays on what or what makes it into the studio and what studio you're going to use. Yeah, yeah, that's um, th so I think that like our kind of recording, our approach to recording, you know, has always kind of been informed by the way, you know, that the band, you know, kind of operates in general. So it's like we're all, you know, we have members that are, you know, spread across the U.S. Um, you know, we have members that uh, live in the U.K., for example, you know, so like we have people that are kind of everywhere. So whenever we're kind of putting or say we're offered a tour, you know, we have a group chat now that is anybody that has ever played a show with self-defense family is part of that group chat so it's got a lot of members in it so like if we were offered something and obviously this hasn't been the case you know for the last two years or so due to you know the COVID-19 pandemic and then um you know kind of before that you know we had just had kind of like a slow period so you know it, but typically it would be like hey you know we got an offer for this x or y who wants to do it you know, whoever was available would kind of throw their hat in. And that might look like, you know, three guitarists playing or like two guitarists. And then Anika might do some, you know, kind of weird synthesizer and play, you know, um, the electric auto harp or something like that. Or, you know, if Alan, you know, was busy with grad school, maybe somebody else would be playing drums or like Mark, um, you know, is, is busy with work, you know, for a particular, you know, kind of stretch in the fall so that he can't come. So, you know, we would have uh, Ian, Ian Shelton of Military Gun and, you know, countless other bands um, would hop in and play uh, drums as well. So, you know, it was just, you know, kind of very common and natural for us to be able to kind of, you know, fit different people, you know, kind of in different places. Um, and I would say the funnest part of that is when everybody gets their turn on bass, because playing, I, in my opinion, playing bass for self-defense family is very fun. So everybody is kind of always, always joyed when they're like, oh, I get to play bass for these, you know, five shows that we're doing, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, kind of tied onto that, it was always difficult for us to get together because it's not like we were all living in, you know, you know, citizen. They all live in Toledo, Ohio. And it's very easy for them, you know, to get together and rehearse and kind of plan things out. Self-defense family, we all live, you know, all over the place. So a little bit more difficult to do that. So we would just kind of program in studio time whenever we had something booked. So we would say, okay, on this day, we're only going to be driving from, you know, L.A. to San Diego. So instead, so during the day on, you know, the day of the San Diego show, we're going to go to Taylor Young's studio. Um, you know, in the valley in California, right outside Los Angeles, and we're going to record four songs. And we would maybe have some riffs. We would maybe not have some riffs, but we would just kind of get down to it. We would have, you know, six hours maybe to, you know, kind of get four or five songs done. Um, and we ended up doing a lot of writing in the studio whenever we would, you know, kind of record things in that way. Rarely would Patrick record vocals um, at that same time. Uh, he would typically always do those afterwards. And uh, so we would always kind of come together. I absolutely love making music in that way. Um, you know, it's, I think it's something that Self-Defense Family is very good at, is that, you know, kind of propulsive, very rhythmic, uh, you know, kind of modal type of composition, um, you know, that can be quite melodic too, but like, you know, not necessarily based on complex long chord progressions or, you know, a song structure that is, you know, um, you know, intentionally trying to be clever, you know, really just kind of vibing out in the studio, you know, starting with, you know, kind of one, uh, you know, kind of more of a riff based idea and then taking it from there. Or like, you know, Alan might be recording drums, but he has a bass riff. So Kai plays the bass riff and then, you know, he puts a drum part to it. So, 
that was kind of how informed, you know, all of those seven inches, EPs, splits and things like that is where we kind of draw the breadth of or, or most of that material from. So we always have stuff kind of in our recording bank, so to speak, that is like two songs that we recorded randomly at this time or two songs that we recorded randomly at this time. And then when the pandemic came around, it seemed like a good time to put vocals to those finally. And so Patrick was recording vocals on songs that maybe had been recorded like four years prior or something like that. So, um, you know, and that's kind of always how it went. And that even is, you know, kind of, you know, for like any time that we record like an LP or like a longer record, we've always tried to get together and write a little bit beforehand to, you know, kind of have it be a little bit more intentional in some ways. Um, but even then we end up kind of, you know, kind of diving into it in that same kind of like collaborative, little bit improvisational, little bit of the seat of the pants kind of method. Um, I would say the unifying figure here is that Patrick never records vocals at the same time that the band records. And those are often done many months later, um, you know, so that's kind of like maybe maybe the one, you know, kind of constant throughout this process. That sounds like a good idea, because I guess it would give him time to uh, mull over what he actually wants to sing about or... Um make sure that the vocals actually fit the uh, instrumentals. Exactly. But from what I've heard of the way Patrick records, it sounds like he just says fuck it one day and books a, a practice space and, and takes the vocals and bloody writes them there as well. Is, it, is, that, is that something that you notice as well? As long as I've known Patrick, he's always written, you know, in the vocal booth or, you know, um, you know kind of as part of the, you know with like the process that day so that, that's not to say it's always been this way i know that when we recorded the the seven inch that has when the barn caves in and then the other song alan is on there he did record vocals that same day so um you know i know that he does that sometimes but he is always writing in the studio and you know kind of doing it in that manner um i know that uh you know he's he's gotten together and recorded with ian shelton a few times just kind of on like rudimentary pretty simple straightforward you know, kind of recording setup, you know, in a practice space, just like you were saying. So, you know, it, it really varies, you know, kind of when it can get done and where it gets done. Sure. And speaking of Ian Shelton, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth that you put out last year, which I saw in the, uh, I guess we'll call them the Bandcamp liner notes, uh, were recorded in, seem, I think were recorded in such a way. And the uh, the mix of Patrick's and Ian's vocals on the on that song juxtaposed against the really beautiful um, chord progression in the background uh, was something that I really enjoyed in particular. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Yeah, that song was um, recorded a very long time ago. That song was probably recorded in, I want to say like 2011, maybe? Um, a uh, Joe who plays in Defeater, and he also played in a, a band called Pale Horse, and I'm sure he, and I think he's kind of a hired gun. So Defeater had, what, so that was in Albany, and there was a, a studio kind of up in the mountains outside Albany that Andrew Duggan um, had an association with, and that's where You Are Beneath Me was recorded, actually. So Joe from Defeater was sleeping on my couch because Defeater had been in town, and I think that their van broke down. Something happened where they had like two days to just be in Albany for some reason. 
And so we, we brought Joe with us up to the studio. We recorded that song. I remember thinking, like, oh, this sounds like Broken Social Scene. This is kind of cool. Um, and then it just, like, went into the vault forever. Mm. And that mix is actually quite interesting because I believe that Andrew did, like, a, you know, just kind of a simple instrumental reference bounce after we were done recording it for the day. Benny played on that, too. Um, and I believe Sean Duty played bass on that. And then all of the stems in the session were lost. So that EP is actually like a, a reference mix that Andrew Duggan made in 2011 at like 9 p.m. after we had finished recording for the day. And then just Patrick's vocal stem. And that's it. <laughs> so there was no there was no mixing of that, unfortunately, <laughs> which is kind of something that we've run into a lot. We've lost a lot of material just to the void, to hard drive failures, you know, like I'll send somebody a WeTransfer link and then it'll expire. Oh, and then, you know, I'll, I'll delete it on my end and then we just have no idea what happened to it. Like, that's a very common thing. And the fact that it was recorded that way, you can't you can't tell uh, when you listen to it that it's not had any mixing or mastering or anything. It has a really nice, um, it has a really warm sound to it um, throughout. Some, some very happy accidents, you know, kind of as part of, uh, you know, that particular recording process in terms of it just kind of coming together and it's nice, it's just kismet. Sure, sure. And um, you were talking about losing things to the void. How, how do you deal with the frustration of that? Or do you just make so much that if you lose something, you lose something and you go again? I don't know. It's just been kind of... Um... It's been kind of the way that self-defense has worked for a long time, that it's also started to kind of, I mean, that it also not even started, it has informed the way that I, you know, kind of also produce music too. Like, you know, um, I, I think I'm a little bit more organized with the visitors and uh, twin cisterns in terms of kind of keeping track of ideas and things like that. But, you know, having like a big library of ideas and then being able to pull from those later on is, I think certainly a, a part of a process for any musician. Um, I think it's just the, the key with self-defense is that sometimes we do it and then it's, you know, it's lost because somebody's computer dies, <laughs> you know, which is just kind of the way that it is. I don't know. I, I think it's just kind of the way that it is. It, it's, it's, you know, um, you know, so much digital media, like we think of it as, you know, kind of a permanent record, but that's just not going to be the case in 40 or 50 years. Like a lot of, you know, kind of music that only lives on streaming services and, you know, kind of like digitally in the cloud is going to suffer, you know, kind of the same effects. So, um, you know, not having fixed copies of things and not having, you know, a solid library reference is, you know, probably not a great thing, you know, in terms of, you know, at least kind of, you know, keeping a legacy, sure. you know, of, you know, what could be, you know, kind of listened to and things like that, which I often think about. I'm like, oh, yeah, we should really work on, you know, fixing some of these, you know, things into, uh, you know, burning some CDs, like having some kind of media that could be protected in like a climate controlled way so that we don't lose it, you know, forever, you know, in some way, shape or form. So I think it's just kind of part of it at this point in time. Like MySpace a couple of years ago, deleting so much of the music that was on there just just by accident. Yes. And, and I saw somebody waxing on Twitter about how it was such like a severe loss, you know, and, and, and it, <laughs> it was all just emo. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, was it a loss? Really? <laughs> Probably not. It, it, all of that stuff was just the, the scene bands 
um, from like 2007. Right, exactly, um, yeah. Crunkcore. Oh my God, um, Crunkcore. Yeah. All, all of that, all of that's gone, and the world is better for it. I would it. say, I Fuck would it. say as well. Take take Facebook down with it as well. Yeah. Let's see what we can get rid of. Right. There. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm just joking, of course. But um, but I guess the the same the same issue could be said about uh, physical media, though, in that it, it's just really difficult with the amount of stuff that gets made every day, every week, every year it would just be impossible to keep track of all of it because even if, say, a small band makes a really, really good EP on a thing of, say, 100 CDs, 250 records, 25 tapes, give it 25 years and only 10% of that will still be in a usable condition. Sure. So Yeah, will still exist, yeah. So really, it's, it's a losing battle in terms of uh, trying to... Unless, unless you uh, make it to a point where, for example, a museum wants to archive archive your work for you, and at that at that point, there's uh, is there even much soul to it if you've uh, if you've shoved it into a museum where it, where it can't be listened to freely, you know. I would rather, in ter- if I'm thinking of like an archive, you know, for like, um, you know, maybe projects I've been a part of. There, there's a so like film like acetate is like there's apparently like an old salt mine somewhere in europe or it might be i believe it's like in eastern europe and a lot of um you know film like the actual like you know uh cellulose you know like film that it's like printed on is stored in that salt mine because the climate is so precise and so dry that it apparently can last there for a very long time. So it's like an underground salt mine that is just devoid of moisture of any type. I would probably want to, maybe I could mail them a box of things and then just say, hey, just like put this down there, you know, for a certain amount of money. (laughs) And then maybe it'll be found someday, who knows. Yeah, if you could persuade some, a corrupt Eastern European official. Yes. To just hide it in with some... uh, some classic, uh, I don't know, uh, the original version of Psycho or something. Right, yes. Um, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to move on in a minute to talking about what links self-defense family together. I think we've already talked about it a little bit, but can you tell me a little bit about the kinds of things that link your guitar work together? Which guitarists and um, records, etc., have you been pulling from? Uh, because you have so many different records with so many different sounds. Sure. Yeah. How do? What do you pull from, and how do you? How do you know what to take from where? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I would say, like, um, you know, for for folks, like, I've always been influenced by instrumental guitar music. So, I've always found, for me at least, like, the most evocative you know, type of, um, you know, kind of uh, guitarist to me is somebody that works purely like in an instrumental way. And there's a lot of really lame shit like that out there. Like like that kind of Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, like the, you know, kind of bombastic shred guitar, I think is, oh, excuse me, pardon me. I think it's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, I'm, I'm drinking way too much LaCroix over here, um, is I think absolutely you know, kind of a discipline that is really fun to listen to. But I would say um, in terms of like the first guitarist that really kind of got me thinking like, oh, that's like, whoa, you know, like I can kind of connect with that is um, honestly, and kind of getting back to the classic rock thing is going to be Jeff Beck, 
who was, you know, in the Yardbirds and, you know, kind of came up in the same scene as, like, Jimmy Page and, like, all those dudes, but has always been, like, to me at least, like, a real weirdo <laughs> in terms of, you know, kind of the, the stuff that he pursues. So I was, like, super into Jeff Beck in high school. I still listen to Jeff Beck records. I think that he's a, a very significant influence because, um, you know, just in terms of, like, phrasing and technique and texture and things along those lines, um, uh, he is definitely, like, my my strat hero. He's, like, absolutely... I think it's very important everybody to have, like, a guitar hero. Um, like, you can have, like, a normal guitar hero, like somebody like Thurston Moore or something like that, who is, like, you know, the person that kind of informs the way that you write music and think about things. But it's always cool. I think everybody probably has one, even if they don't think they do. To ha Like, you think that you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix is, like, your number one, you know, or something, like, along those lines. Like, a classic idea of, like, what a guitar hero is. And um, for me, at least, that's absolutely Jeff Beck. And I have just always loved the way that he has approached, you know, his playing and kind of propelling it forward. Um, a lot of people, when they think of Jeff Beck, think of, like, his kind of, like, jazz fusion era and, you know, kind of that stage of things, and that's kind of where they still ape him from. But meanwhile, he is making new records that sound different every time that he makes a record. And some of them I'm not a huge fan of, but like I still really appreciate the way that, you know, even going into being an old man, you know, he's not kind of found like that economical, relaxed kind of playing style that like it seems like all, you know, kind of like classic rock baby boomer age folks do. He's always doing something really odd. And I think that's I think that's really good in my opinion. So I would say Jeff Beck, uh, James Blackshaw is another huge influence. Instrumental solo acoustic guitarist, um, you know, plays absolutely gorgeous, complex, finger picked, very intricate, uh, you know, kind of melodic stuff. Um, he he plays twelve string quite a bit, um, and. I think that's always a, an absolutely beautiful... His music is very dense, if you've never heard James Blackshaw. Um, and I think what's cool about James Blackshaw is that, like... So in the, in the you know, kind of world... And this is kind of like when I think of Twin Cisterns, I think of it as, like, instrumental solo acoustic guitar. You know, like that kind of lane. So, like, John Fahey is often held up as, like, you know, the, the, the kind of utmost in terms of, like, that, you know, more... I believe that he's been referred to as like American primitive music um, because it kind of has that Appalachian, you know, Lomax recording style sound to it. Um, and a lot of people just kind of copied John Fahey, myself included, when I'm just kind of tooling around. Um, James Blackshaw, I think, is really great because like he seemed to have immediately had a record and a sound in a way that he just sounded. You know, he just kind of came out and he's like, hey, this is my voice. It is very different, incredibly dense, complex music. Um, that is often just him playing it by himself. He does experiment with some overdubs on some of his records that are really beautiful as well. Um, but I think, you know, a vast majority of, of what I really love that James Blackshaw does is just solo acoustic guitar. And to me, that is just such a significant, just simple way of making music, and I just really love that. See, the, this is really interesting because uh, when you listen to a band like Self-Defense Family or particularly End of the Year before it, you wouldn't expect to hear Patrick say that one of his main influences was Rush, and then you say <laughs> that one of your your main influences is, um, you know, the these instrumental um, classic rock guitar guys. So that's a, that's really interesting to hear about. Um, 
and I'll, de- I'll definitely be listening to those. I'll be adding them to to my uh, increasing list of stuff I need to check out. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. So we were talking earlier about the kind of ethos that um, brings the members of Self-Defense Family together and the the pretty natural way that each record and each tour uh, come comes together where you have your group chat and you all just say, right, I'll play on this one, I'll play this, I'll play that, etc., etc. Um, let's talk more about the, um, I guess I would say, the, the technical side of things in a sense that... Um, there's a there seems to be a real sense of awareness between all of you as to what makes your work connect with so many weirdos <laughs> despite the fact that e- each release is for example colicky is so much different to australia sure. so much different to uh, uh have you considered punk music is so much different to this power does not work in the presence of non-believers etc um so each release is wildly different in terms of style and genre, yet you're always trying something different. And with so many members, with bands that are less well in tune with one another, this is this would be a really dangerous line to play to not find a style or a, a you know a kind of thing that work their lane and just sure. stick to it. Um, so how do you think you've pulled it off where others? might might fail and failing isn't necessarily a bad thing you know it's better to have tried and had it not work than um not tried at all but there are definitely bands that will will put out a couple of really good records that people really love and they'll have their sound and then the on the third record they'll try something that's you know a marked departure from where they were before and the people that connected with their work on the first two records won't be so interested. How have you avoided that? Yeah, I think that, wow, that's a, that's a really good question, actually. Well, so I think kind of going back to the beginning of it, the thing that has always kind of kept self-defense, I think, kind of uniform and at least have, you know, kind of had all of our members, you know, like feel unified and when we're still kind of making very different records has, has to just be like the personal connection, you know, like I, I've known Patrick for ever at this point in time. I remember going to a show when I was maybe 15 or 16 and Patrick, um, gave me and a few of my friends a ride to a corner store to like, go get Arizona iced teas or something like that. You know, like I, I've always have known Patrick. Uh, We played in a, like a weird three-piece kind of loud experimental band that was called Little Leopards um, was when I first started playing music with Patrick and then he asked me to uh, fill in for end of a year uh, playing guitar and that's kind of when that musical relationship started um, same thing for everybody else in the band like Alan, Mary, Benny um, they have been at this point in time like you know I think each other has been you know kind of our longest musical relationships and that really kind of makes it when you get back together with those folks um, you know we all have the same sense of humor like we all you know kind of enjoy the same things like none of us are you know huge party guys or you know like we all want to you know make a, a dynamic good piece of work and then also like like sleep a lot, you know, and like get out of the show early and eat really well. And I think that rapport that we've just had over doing this for a long time has really powered the creative process as well. 
Um, you know, so like we've always really enjoyed each other's company. Like I, going on tour with Self Defense Family, um, no matter who the lineup is, is always a joy. You know, um, like there's never any kind of issue in that way. And in terms of like being able to kind of maintain a an artistic output through a lot of different you know, kind of styles and, um, you know, kind of sounds, I think really kind of comes from our recording process, you know, kind of going back to the way that we just record on tour. Because if we are recording with a specific type of, you know, if we're recording, um, you know, okay, so say for example, we are going to be recording an EP with Taylor Young. So that was Colicky, for example. Taylor is an incredibly powerful producer. You know, like his records sound big, like they sound angry, they sound mean as hell. I think his drum sound is absolutely amazing. And, you know, so that kind of informed the way we approached writing those batch of songs. Like they became very aggressive, you know, and really like, um, you know, kind of straightforward in that way. Same thing that when we recorded um, the, uh, God, and this is embarrassing. This definitely happens to me. I forget the names of songs. Um, we re- we recorded with Bob Cooper, who uh, you may know. Oh, was that the Leeds? Yes, one? the Leeds record, which was the former Sisters of Mercy studio. Okay. We kind of embraced that idea, that kind of weird, dark UK, rainy goth, you know, sort of thing too. So, you know, we kind of let the the area that we're in, the scenario that we're in, kind of influence those things. Um, same thing for Australia, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of recording down in Melbourne, um, you know, for that particular EP as well. So, you know, that kind of always, you know, kind of worms its way into it and informs it, you know, absolutely. Um, I would say the best example of an area-influenced recording has got to be the Iceland EP, um, you know, which was done on... Uh, I actually did play guitar for... And to be your self-defense family on the following tour of that, but it was just Benny, Sean Duty, Alan, and Patrick who had recorded that EP. And to me, that is the most evocative of a location and a time, Iceland in the middle of winter, um, you know, in particular, you know, for that EP. So yeah, I would say just like, you know, like we all like enjoy the hell out of being around each other. And, um, you know, because we're not you know, kind of in that, you know, something that I think aficionado was, I'm still absolutely best friends with everybody, you know, in that group, but something that that particular band suffered from was that we were, we were going for it, you know? So we would be trying to tour six, eight months out of the year. And that can be a total grind and it can really kind of wear down on what you're doing, especially if you're, you know, just kind of playing into the void and you're not really necessarily seeing the kind of feedback that you want. I think with self-defense family, I've been very fortunate to, um, you know, it, it's a sanctuary to play music in. It's not something that, you know, we go out and do and then it feels like it's work. Um, you know, we do it less often than other bands probably do. And as a result, it's just a complete joy. Yeah, you can, you can tell that self de- self-defense tours feel like, like events, you know? Sure. When self-defense family comes to the UK, for example, even if there are um, there are only going to be you know thirty forty people at a show, everybody wants to be there. You know, this the see, seeing self defense family isn't the kind of thing you sit through and go. Ugh. Right. I mean, I'm sure some people feel that way. <laughs> like for on a headliner show, seeing self defense family isn't the the sort of thing that people say. Oh, I'm just here for the other bands. Like. It's it's an experience, I, yes. I guess, uh, and I 
I guess in some ways, because the music that Self-Defense Family makes is so weird with the, you know, the beautiful uh, droning instrumentation juxtaposed against Patrick's weird screeds over the top. <laughs> For some people that can definitely be, be weird. I mean, I'll go back to the first time I saw Self-Defense Family was in 2013, uh, I think, back at London Underworld. And it was Self-Defense Family with Touche Amore, and I can't remember who the other band on that, but Bill, Dad Punches, that that was it. Dad Punches, that's right, yeah. Elliot's um, band. Yes, I was 19 and I was there, and my friends uh, were very much excited for Dad Punches and Touche Amore, uh, but I had checked out Self-Defense Family before the show. I'd listened to Tyfe Pig, and I thought that was a really cool song, but I couldn't quite get into the rest of the record, but I knew there was something there. And um, I sat through the set absolutely, um, I was just like mesmerized at what was going on, if, if I'm honest. And um, I went home and I it took me ages to get into the recorded output, ages, but I kept banging my head against that door. <laughs> and, and eventually it was just like, wow, okay, I get it now. But I know that a lot of the people I was there with on that show, the, the more straightforward stuff like the, Touche More and the dad punches where it was just like you know what you're getting this is like this fits more with with the kind of scenes that self-defense family were forcing their way into yeah. at the time right <laughs> but those, those bands don't interest me as much anymore um i'm sure i'll listen to a touche more record and still feel feel good that i'm listening to it over you know a top 40 song or something but i i used to be a touche more like fanatic at 18 19 amazing yes now they're more of a they're more of a nostalgia sure act for me which um which is still great i'll still listen to beat of a dead horse and think oh yeah this is sick but it, the teenage angst that came with it has worn off over time whereas i know that my friends and my girlfriend at the time were very much not enjoying watching self-defense family that's very i was gonna say that's very funny because i sorry i did not go on that tour because it was right when i moved to los angeles so i was kind of like in a you know financially it was like oh i don't think i can do that and i remember the feedback from the guys um and then mary i think and kai also played on that tour as well just being like yeah like you know some nights we were just it was like playing to a brick wall in terms of the um <laughs> you know, kind of like the, the reaction from the crowd and the, you know, kind of interaction they were getting on it. And, you know, other nights it was great. Um, Touche has always been so kind to Self-Defense Family, and we absolutely love those guys. They are, are great friends, um, you know, kind of of ours. And, uh, you know, it, that was, a I, I think, a really cool opportunity, you know, for Self-Defense Family to get to go out and get a little bit of exposure. I think a lot of people had a similar feeling at the time they were like what the hell is this you know but um you know i think in the long term you know we've really kind of connected with, with a lot of folks that you know maybe were at those shows or you know we're part of that audience yeah so it's, it's a slow burn it's a slow burn Where, yeah whereas about oh, yeah. like touche you can connect with instantly you can hear the first riff on uh partnership between brightness and me yes and that that's it you're you're in because it's so fast and so or, or the breakdowns on to a beat of a dead horse, you can listen to that and straight away you're like your head's bopping. Oh yeah. Whereas with uh, self defense family, for someone, and I think also I think it also comes down to the fact that we were all eighteen or nineteen and hadn't had maybe some of the life experiences that Patrick was singing about. Um, 
that makes that connect more uh, as I age, you know, because a year doesn't go like every year I get more interested in self-defense. This is just me talking to you about how much I like your band. I'm sorry. <laughs> but every year I get more interested. And this isn't to disparage Touche or Dad Punches at all. Both are really great bands filled with like amazing artistic expression. And it goes without saying hugely successful and influential uh musicians in their own right wildly so yeah yeah exactly just trying to highlight that self-defense had that niche that can be difficult to understand but once it sticks its hook in you that's it you know so let's move on and talk about your latest output view from beneath the first synth heavy track released from run the dungeon the soundtrack that self-defense family has created for patrick's latest graphic novel of the same title in the brooklyn vegan press release pat is quoted as saying being trapped in a scary stone labyrinth got entirely too dark and serious for me the past decade i found myself wanting to read a proper second edition DD style dungeon crawl where death is looming but your job is to laugh in its face we, we hear a lot about what Patrick feels and thinks about the way Self-Defense Family runs and about all of these projects. But I'm interested to hear your side of your side of things. No offense to Patrick. I'm always interested to hear what he has to say. But um, I, I'd love to hear about how the instrumentals came together. So the article mentioned that you've been composing for television. So first, I'd be interested in interested to hear you talk about how you got into that and what exactly that involves and then i'd like to hear about the process involved uh, in making music to accompany your friends barely punk adjacent work under the self self-defense banner yeah sure so um yeah so so that reference for like you know kind of television cues um that is you know kind of work that i've been engaged with for or engaged in rather for I would say close to seven years now, um, principally. So, so I started doing that when I lived in Los Angeles. I had been working, um, you know, kind of I, honestly odd jobs for an incredibly talented mix engineer. His name is John Kaplan, and uh, was like doing everything from like helping him build, you know, soundproof batting for his studio to like hanging drywall. I fixed some guitars for him. Um, random stuff like that and then he called me one day and he's like hey um you know my former bandmates because uh, he had played he had been part of like the jam scene in like the 80 late 80s 90s you know like uh you know that kind of thing um his former bandmate had been composing music for a long time for mtv for like that show boiling point and a few other you know kind of uh, you know, kind of weird MTV things like that. They were starting a music library and they needed composers. So it was a very serendipitous, right place, right time kind of situation for me. Um, so I've been writing for that music library for now. And the way that um, this work primarily for me has been engaged is that, uh, you know, so TV networks, you know, need incidental music, um, you know, for shows. So, you know, that could be anything from like transition music on reality TV shows, which we've all heard before, to just like little instrumental snippets here and there. And um, so I started composing for Strike, have done a lot, uh, like the way that it works is like they'll put a call out for a specific vibe, like a specific type of work, um, you know, like uh, acoustic instrumental, acoustic bluegrass, you know, things along those lines. And I've, I've done a, a huge range 
of material for it. And it's all, you know, like a 30 second, minute, minute 30, you know, like little cues. Um, John and I did a lot of, you know, kind of post-rock, like explosions in the sky-esque stuff together. Um, and yeah, have been very fortunate to have been, you know, kind of writing for Strike for a long time. And um, that has earned me a lot of placements on a lot of different uh, television shows. So that's kind of how I've been in that. Um, not something that I've done in the past eight months. Uh, there's definitely been like a little bit of a, a glut in terms of, you know, kind of writing opportunities, um, especially during the COVID pandemic. But um, I, you know, I've really kind of put my feelers out and I've expanded. I've done a couple of documentary scores. I've done, um, you know, Albuquerque is kind of like a burgeoning uh, television production location. Uh, Netflix is opening studios here. I've done um, a little bit of uh, kind of incidental and placeholder music for, you know, some pilot TV shows or TV show pilots rather and things along those lines. So, yeah, that's just, you know, always a line of work that I'm just kind of like adding to, expanding to, you know, kind of keeping my eye out for it. Um, you know, that's, yeah, just something that I've done for a long time now at this point. Sure. And are you able to uh, tell me what some specific shows you've had, had music on? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's it's because it's not purpose written for shows, it can be kind of random. But actually, I just got my statement from BMI um, the other day. So like, okay, so here, let's let's see. So um, one of the big ones is there's a show called Night Watch, which I, I believe is a drama show about uh, first responders <laughs> in maybe New, or maybe New Orleans, I think, you know, kind of like in those, you know, like network procedural dramas like that. Um, had a lot of music in that Leah Romini Scientology documentary that came out. Um, like uh, Duck Dynasty, there's been some, uh, quite, quite a few placements there. Um, Nightwatch has definitely been like kind of a perennial, um, you know, we've had a lot of music on that. And also like a lot of bad reality shows <laughs> that are like 90, 90 day. That's what I'm interested in. I was going to say 90 day fiance. Um, got a lot of music on 90 day sure. fiance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the catfish show on MTV, um, no way. yeah, like a lot of rando stuff out there. So. Um, and actually, as I'm looking at it now, like there's quite a bit of 90 Day Fiance. Um, but it's funny, though. It's a funny line of work because uh, if you get the right placement on the right TV show, you can earn a lot of money. And I would say 90% of the money that I make from it comes from one cue that is on the, sh the show Nightwatch. And it's used for the credits. So it's um, obviously with syndication, if the more that you get played, the more it gets used... Um, you know, so like if you can have, you know, kind of, um, you know, something that gets used every episode of a popular TV show, then you can really generate, you know, kind of a nice passive income. So it's just kind of like another thing that I just try to claw a little bit of money out of in terms of making music. Um, you know, for me, it's the constant struggle of, you know, just trying to squeeze a little some dollars out of this thing that I'm doing, you know, instead of having to rely purely on you know, like a day job or something along those lines. So, so yeah, that that's kind of the long and short of that. I just heard you use the phrase passive income. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the tweet a couple of days ago by the uh, hustle and grind guy who was like, oh, if you offered me a million dollars now or $50 every week for the rest of my life, what would I take? 
I'd take the $50. And then he he was just saying how he could use that $50 to make business opportunities that will make him passive income for life. <laughs> and then when somebody sent him like a shitty response to it, he turns around and says to him, well, you can turn that $50 into 50 tomato plant seeds, plant 50 tomatoes, oh, of course. then use the seeds from those plants to make 250, etc., etc., to the point where you're selling like 100,000 tomatoes. <laughs> oh, no. Boom, you've got $100,000. And uh, then you've got me thinking, okay, I'll take the $50, use that to buy... Uh, a really shitty version of like a really shitty downscale version of logic i don't know fruity loops or something um and then make really bad television cues for passive income for the rest of my life there you go baby that that's that hustle grind mindset you know it you know it always on the grind always on the grind right so now that we've uh, spoken about tv let's uh Let's go back to talking about Run the Dungeon. Can you um, tell me about that from your perspective? Yeah, sure. So uh, that that Run the Dungeon is like the probably the most fun that I've had working on music um, in a long time. Absolutely enjoyed the hell out of that process. Basically, Patrick came to me. He's like, hey, you know, we're writing a book. Um, you know, what we want to do is have a, you know, basically what would fundamentally be a soundtrack for the book um, and also potentially some like, you know, D and D campaigns, Dungeons and Dragons campaigns that might be written with it, you know, kind of like a, like a package deal of some kind. So I was like, that sounds so cool. Yes. 100%. <laughs> um, at the time, you know, had been, uh, you know, kind of, I had like a pretty, you know, definitely, you know, I got into synthesizers and kind of making, you know, music with the synthesizers like any, you know, kind of white dude in his 30s who like has a little a little bit more money than he did six years ago. So it's like, you know, not a big deal to buy, you know, a couple different kinds of synths. So like, you know, that was definitely me at that time. Um, and yeah, it was just uh, I had been I had been making some of that cue music that was a little bit more kind of synth based um, for the library, so I kind of was in that work mode and then just kind of went into it and then had been listening to a lot of Tangerine Dream and other, you know, kind of, uh, you know, more synth-based projects like that, and it's a combination. So the, the first song that, you know, was released is much more of, I would say it's basically a self-defense family song that has, that basically I just played all the parts on synths instead of you know, like a more traditional instrumentation. And Andrew Duggan also um, contributed uh, drum tracks to a lot of that material too. So it's not just me, it's it's myself, Andrew, Patrick. And, um, but a lot of the other music that's going to be a part of that record is much more atmospheric. So there's a bunch of very atmospheric, um, you know, much more like you're walking through some glittering caves. It's purely soundtrack. And uh, there are also a few more tracks that have Patrick. And then um, the closing track is, is absolutely gorgeous. I cannot wait for folks to hear it. Um, very big, expansive, uh, enveloping, you know, kind of type of, um, you know, kind of composition there. So yeah, doing the music for Run the Dungeon was really great. Did it uh, a long time ago and it was such a delight to finally, you know, Patrick kind of sent me a text one day and was like, hey, this is going to get announced tomorrow. And I was like, no way. I had no idea. <laughs> um, which, again, very self-defense family thing is that we, we record something, we fall in love with it. 
it goes away and then it comes back and then it's like a, a beautiful joy to kind of experience so yeah run the dungeon uh doing that music was um an absolute joy absolute joy so is this a is this a full lp it is no i believe it's only six songs so it's kind of like an ev accompaniment um but it is kind of long though still because some of the the tracks are quite lengthy would um some of it be suitable as like work music yeah maybe like you know stick on stick on yeah stick on in the background i would say so yeah absolutely cool and you were speaking about synthy stuff and uh the the solo stuff you do on the side of self-defense etc so so let's start talking about it yeah sure particularly with like twin cisterns and the visitors how does writing and recording for yourself without the influence of outside pressure such as having to make something that would be a soundtrack to someone else's book or having to write riffs that you'll be working on with other people like you know chiseling down how does writing for yourself and only yourself differ for you to working on bands and stuff talk me through the process and motivations that you have for that yeah it's actually so when i'm writing for myself it's actually quite difficult like if somebody if someone is kind of assigning me a task or they're saying like hey this music is going to be for this which is why writing for the library is you know kind of like a a very easy thing for me to do because it's very purpose-driven in that way um when i'm recording i haven't released any twin cisterns music in a long time because um i've just had a little bit of difficulty you know kind of finding the motivation to to dig into that type of thing you know from a purely just like it's just for me style standpoint you know because there's you know uh releasing that music is you know a little bit more just like okay here's a group of songs that I've got they've got to go out now you know it's probably been four years since I put out a Twin Systems EP and that's where kind of uh, the the visitors you know project you know kind of filled that hole because you know I had this equipment um, you know the the various synthesizers and I was just having such a, a joy of a time exploring all of those textures so it was a little bit more like I was motivated to write something that was maybe a little bit you know, kind of more atmospheric synth focused, um, you know, kind of in that way. And like, I'm a huge fan of like Juliana Barwick and Nils Fromm and a lot of composers like that. So that was what kind of informed, you know, that particular outfit, um, output rather. But I would say it's it's kind of hard for me, you know, day to day to just, uh, you know, kind of, you know, create something that is purely for, for one of those two projects. I've been playing a lot more guitar over the last six months than I had been in maybe the the 18 months prior to that, Um, you know, which has been absolutely fantastic. I think that I've got four or five songs together for a a Twin Sisters EP um, that I just kind of have to find time to record basically, you know, at this point in time. So um, yeah, the solo projects are definitely like, are, are perfect little avenues for me to like when I have ideas that are very strongly burned into my brain and need to get out those are perfect venues for that um you know but it's it's just kind of ebb and flow though i'm not much of that you know i know a lot of musicians that are are so steady about their output and like they're so good about putting stuff out you know kind of on a regular basis um and for me it's it's a little bit more of a kind of motivation driven in terms of um you know if if i don't have you know, a collaborator to work with, it's very easy for me to just kind of work on these songs, tweak them, perfect them, play them on my porch for myself, 
and that's kind of it, you know, and not necessarily ever record them, you know, kind of and, and put them out. So, yeah, it's just like kind of like another, you know, kind of element of, you know, kind of the way that I, I treat music and I develop it for myself. When you're putting out solo projects, do you just record them at home? Um, yeah, typically, yes. Uh, I definitely have had folks record things for me in the past. Um, but I have uh, a pretty efficient setup now that I could record it at home. Um, I do with Twin Cisterns. Um, anytime that I've self-recorded, it's been a little bit difficult. So I think for this next group of songs, um, once the time comes to kind of get those recorded, which I think will probably be, you know, at the end of the summer when I have like a little bit more time is going to be probably hiring somebody to do it for me because it's a lot easier for me to go into a studio situation when I'm working with my own material um, and then know that I'm on the clock and kind of know that, you know, the performance, you know, has to be very good. And um, whenever I've been in that situation before, I rehearse a lot for it. So I only have to do like two takes and have that, you know, kind of be the whole output. And then you don't have to think about the um, the other side of things as well. You don't have to think about pressing go on the right. Making sure that everything's labeled correctly and all the takes are okay. Exactly. The production standpoint. Without a doubt. Okay. And before we move on to some more general topics, are there any projects you've worked on recently or that are oncoming that we haven't touched on, uh, music related or otherwise, that you can tell me about? Particularly, and if you can't, you can't, it's fine. But can you tell me anything about that self-defense family live record that um, Patrick put the artwork up for? Back in like, oh yes, December twenty eighteen. Yes, so because record record store day is gone and been I and gone. know it's been and gone exactly, and it was I uh, I thought that was going to be released for record store day, but I don't think so apparently. Um, I know that it's it's mixed, it's finished. Um, Alan and I spent a lot of time working um, with John Markson, who had both recorded the tracks live and then mixed them to just kind of ensure that the mix was sounding good. Um, Sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, In terms of its release, um, I do not have any information though, you know, kind of when that would be. So not entirely sure about that. I imagine that we probably did have aim on doing something for Record Store Day, but getting a record press now is seems impossible to do so so i'm sure that it was probably you know kind of pushed out for you know kind of some other projects but you know in addition to that um have been making a lot of field recording material um that is again purely just kind of for like my own pleasure in a lot of ways i may i did put out a an an lp of field recording um towards the end of the year last year and uh probably do plan on doing a little bit more you know kind of in that regard Okay, and what what does making a field recording, what what does that encompass? Well, yeah, so, like, kind of my main motivation for that is that um, uh, Alan, uh, you know, my good friend and bandmate, um, you know, had exposed me to a, you know, I think he's an absolutely amazing photographer. He, uh, a, a quote that he had exposed me to was, make visible what? without you might never have been seen and you know kind of my motivation for some of that field recording is that obviously spend a lot of time backpacking and you know kind of you know finding myself out in nature and really just trying to capture you know kind of like you know little moments like that um it's a very slippery slope because field recording is definitely 
ex I think experiencing a little bit of a, a renaissance in some ways, and there are a lot of people out there just doing like incredibly high definition, like forest soundscapes that are just uploaded for free, you know, up on um, you know kind of anywhere. Um, so just kind of just trying to find you know something unique and you know kind of you know kind of bring that to light and expose people to that. What kind of gear would you have to take out to to do that successfully? Yeah. That's a good question. So like I have like a little Zoom H5 recorder, which is pretty good. It has kind of a high uh, noise floor, unfortunately. So there, it, it is not the cleanest sounding rec uh, recorder, but it is not terribly difficult to clean up those tracks. Um, I have a, um, a Sennheiser um, K66. No, a K6 is the power module. Um, the microphone that I have is like a shotgun mic for it with like one of those big road windscreen blimps on it to have like a pretty wind free you know pretty straightforward kind of recording process so i have that and then i have a contact mic that is made by this um company in europe called loam audio and it's like a piece of geological sensing equipment that has been changed into a musical instrument um and that's a lot of fun to use as well so um you can really get way too into it and spend many thousands of dollars on um, incredibly, you know, kind of, uh, you know, pristine, you know, recording devices. I probably do want to buy a better, um, you know, kind of a recording unit at some point in time. But, you know, that's just, you kind of will come, you know, when, uh, you know, when the time comes for that, at least. I'm sure it's difficult to justify that when uh, that kind of thing, although there's plenty of artistic and, um social value to having you know such beautiful sounds of you know nature and soundscapes and things like that yeah exactly you can't cl claw all that much money back from um from a high-end purchase on a microphone used just for that no without a doubt and one of the most annoying things about field recording as you kind of dive into it and i think any hobby kind of experiences this you know now in 2021 is that, you know, like you get in there, you know, you might post something on your social media and be like, hey, I shared this. And then, you know, obviously the algorithm recognizes like, oh, you hashtag this field recording. We're going to show you some other field recordists. And then you find some guy that has like 200,000 followers and his, his whole thing is just free to use sounds. And his, you know, entire library of sounds is like, oh, this is just some Danish guy <laughs> that wants to have a social media presence who is just putting out free to use sounds. And then of course, everybody kind of turns it into this weird kind of influencer, you know, kind of, uh, you know, needing to kind of share all these things on social media. So with field recording, I, I basically just kind of keep that mostly to myself. You know, that's just like a thing I love to do. I love to listen to, I love to share it with, you know, people close to me. That's and nice. you know, that's kind of, kind of the, the, the mess of it for sure. That's uh, that's really pure. I like to hear about that. That's cool. So moving away from music, let's talk a little bit more about how you spend your life away from bands and stuff. As you were saying earlier, you like to spend your time outdoors um, with the with hiking, camping, taking photos, doing field re recordings, um, spending time with that beautiful dog of yours. Have you always been an outs outdoorsy person? And where did where did this kind of thing come from? Oh, and tell, tell me about New Mexico as well and how you ended up there. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so I, I definitely have not always been an outdoorsy person. Um, growing up, definitely went camping, you know, and spent time outside. But I think that 
kind of a, a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of part of me was unlocked when I moved. So I lived in LA and LA is, you know, adjacent to a lot of, you know, fabulous, you know, kind of outside resources. Obviously the ocean, you know, is right there going to the beach is great, but you know, you're not too far from the Pacific Crest Trail. You're not too far from like Sequoia National Park, Joshua Tree. So I was able to kind of, you know, see, you know, some things that were kind of more expansive outside of like the upstate New York you know, style of being outside, which is just like incredibly verdant, green, um, wet, you know, and kind of seeing the desert was a little bit like, oh, wow, like this is, this is way fucking different. And then when I moved to New Mexico, that was kind of my exposure to like the mountain West because, you know, New Mexico, I think is often, you know, kind of in it, within media is kind of given like the same, like kind of Mexico treatment where like, there's like a yellow filter, you know, on everything, and it's, like, kind of, you know, just kind of treated as a flat desert, but New Mexico's, you know, incredibly high elevation where I live, it's, it's you know, I think Albuquerque is, like, 5,200 feet, same elevation as Denver, just, you know, uh, many, you know, kind of latitudes further south, um, you know, so this is a, a very mountainous part of the country, and then the further up north you get, the more mountainous it gets, so I, I think when I moved here, that really kind of unlocked, like, a, a, a love and a joy of kind of exploring that type of terrain, and that really translated really readily into, you know, getting into, um, you know, rock climbing outside and backpacking. Um, New Mexico is very empty in a lot of ways when you kind of consider some of the various wilderness areas, like going for a hike in Colorado much different than going for a hike down here because there's not nearly as many people kind of vying for that same access to outside spaces so you can really find yourself very alone very easily and you know Albuquerque is a big metropolitan area um, you know a lot going on but if you just drive in 20 minutes in any direction you're just going to be in the middle of nowhere and and I don't mean necessarily nowhere because there's a lot of various um, you know the Sandia Pueblo is to the north um, one of the the various Pueblo Indian reservations um, you know down south there's another one out to the west there's the Petroglyph National Monument which is a national park and then the Sandia Mountains to the east so you can basically get out of the city very easily and find yourself, you know, into some, you know, very, you know, kind of much more lonelier terrain, um, which to me is completely intoxicating in terms of like having a place to live like that and having that access. I don't think it's always going to be like that because New Mexico is one without a doubt becoming a destination for, you know, kind of creative folk and people that are, you know, kind of looking for a cheap place to buy a home. So even as I, as I angle to buy a house myself sometime in the next eight months, I am, um, you know, kind of looking to maybe do that within Albuquerque or, you know, maybe Santa Fe or Taos or something like that. Um, but yeah, so I would say moving out to the Mountain West really kind of unlocked that love for, you know, climbing, exploring and all those things like that. And um, I just can't get enough of it, to be honest with you. Sure. And can you tell me about some of your favorite experiences you've had um, since you've been out there of doing those kinds of things? Yeah, totally. So um, this past season, two seasons, I've gotten um, pretty serious about backcountry skiing. And uh, if for anybody that doesn't know what backcountry skiing is, it's basically like ski finding places to ski that are not within resorts. So not within, um, you know, kind of like a controlled, like lift service terrain. So you have special equipment that basically allows you to like ski uphill and then find yourself, you know, kind of in more like remote stretches. Um, this has been 
incredibly fun for me to get into. It's a very dangerous pastime because um, when you're talking about uncontrolled ski areas, um, you're talking about like avalanches and other, you know, kind of natural uh, terrain features that can be very dangerous to find yourself in. Um, and so, so getting into backcountry skiing and spending a lot of time in the Taos area and Southern Colorado and stuff like that is just, for me, has just been like an incredibly eye-opening experience and just, yeah, like I said, intoxicating. Like, I just want to do that as much as possible. You know, you're, you're finding yourself alone, somewhere very dangerous. Um, of course, you know, like you've, you've done all your research and you are ready to be very safe. But to me, there is something incredibly special about just kind of getting out, um, you know, kind of relying on, you know, the, the trust that you have in the partners that are with you in that experience. And, you know, like uh, the, the main goal with backcountry skiing is to come home alive because it is a very it is a very dangerous pastime. You know, I think more people died in Colorado and Utah this year because the avalanche conditions and, and forecasts were so bad this year than any year prior. So, um, yeah, getting into that has been absolutely amazing. Um, I took an avalanche course. It's, it's called ARI, uh, the certification um, up in Rocky Mountain National Park this past February. And that was, you know, probably some of the most, um, you know, fun that I've had kind of getting out amongst it. And, and what kinds of things do you do to um to keep yourself safe with this pastime pardon the pun like what what do you do for self-defense there (laughs) yeah so like yeah when you're backcountry skiing you're basically just trying to avoid any type of terrain or scenario that you would find yourself um at risk for being part of an avalanche so you're avoiding terrain of a certain steepness you're avoiding you're learning to, you know, read a weather forecast and then compile that with data on like snow levels and, you know, temperatures to say like, okay, we probably wouldn't want to ski anything that's above 35 degrees, you know, at on, you know, this particular weekend because the risk is too high, you know, um, you know, you, like there's a lot of education that's involved with it. The access is enormously expensive because like, you know, it's the, the equipment is expensive access to that knowledge is somewhat limited it's not very easy to understand um you know like what those things could be taking the course is expensive you know i'm very fortunate to have a little bit of money to spend on things like that um you know so it is it is definitely uh you know kind of tricky to achieve that access for sure and are there any other particular things that you've done since you've moved out there that would count as highlights for you yeah so i would say um you know definitely just backpacking within New Mexico, mountain biking within New Mexico, all just kind of enjoying recreating in this place, um, you know, has been just a, a complete highlight. I've I've become a person that's into all the same sports that like a person named Tyler or Braden would be into. Um, you know, so like I'm definitely like an annoying outside guy, but um, you know, probably just being able to kind of enjoy this place and um, you know, also, uh, yeah, yeah, just has been absolutely fantastic. We got into it before my iPad rudely crashed, but how did you find yourself out there? Could you recall the story again for us? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah, I moved here for love. It was you know someone that I had met here while Self Defense Family was on tour. Um, we, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. Um, you know, we definitely had like a, you know, pretty heady whirlwind kind of long distance romance over six to eight months. Then I moved here and then we like basically immediately broke up. 
Um, yeah, so it was just one of those, you know, kind of, you know, just like one of those things, one of those informative things that, you know, kind of needs to happen to a person, you know, to kind of move them from one place to another, I guess. So um, that's how I ended up here. And um, never in a million years did I expect to, you know, kind of fall in love with living here and, and being in New Mexico with, without a doubt. And, and how long have you had your dog for? I've had Tilly for, I want to say three, I think this past was three years. This past eight, April was three years. She comes with you on quite a lot of the, uh, like the drives and the camps and stuff, doesn't she? She does. Yes. She's not much of an outside dog, to be honest. Um, she, she, she's a rescue. She has a lot of anxiety. Uh, she can be a little bit territorial in terms of camping and hiking, you know, like if, uh, you know, I'm taking a break or I'm setting up camp, she doesn't like when other people approach at all, you know, which is not bad from like a guard dog perspective, but can be a little bit embarrassing when you're just trying to relax in a campground. Um, and uh, yeah, she doesn't love being outside, which is totally fine. She stays home quite a bit when I'm, you know, kind of out and recreating. She's she loves the dog hotel that we go to. It's like one of like there's like these two like goth teenagers that work there and they love her. So it's like a perfect scenario in in many ways. So yeah, it's I definitely had those, you know, like you see, you know, people living that van life, you know, people with their, you know, kind of flashy social media out west and they have like a cattle dog that does literally everything with them. And that was kind of my idea when I got Tilly. I'm like, this is going to be my little adventure, bud. And then it turns out Tilly you know, does not love when it's windy out. That really scares her. And she kind of starts shivering and just, you know, so, you know, I've been exposing her to more and more, but at the same time, if she's an inside dog, you know, that's fine. That's totally fine. So I, I really enjoy seeing the photos and videos of Tilly. So um, indoors, outdoors, whatever. Very nice dog. Yes, she's wonderful. I'm going to move on now away from that and on to more of just like talking about the kinds of things that you might have enjoyed outside of your own work or outside of the great outdoors recently, the kinds of things that other people have made that have particularly influenced you over the past year or so when the pandemic struck, we found ourselves with a lot more time indoors to ourselves, you know, shows got cancelled, couldn't go to the shops anymore as freely or to bars, etc. So um, what kinds of like bands and books and films and television have you been enjoying over the last, I don't know, year or even more recently? Whatever it is, it's all worth talking about. Yeah, for sure. So, like, you know, in terms of I've been reading, like, a lot of um, uh, I've been reading Watership Down for the first time recently, which I had not read previously. And this has been, like, an eye-opening experience for me. I've been loving reading that book, like, just, like, the level of depth and lore there is to a book about rabbits is stunning um i I have been working my way through um love peter matheson um i i revisit and i reread the snow leopard you know like once every two years and i've been reading um in the spirit of crazy horse which is a huge book about leonard peltier um that he wrote in the 80s uh, let's see what else have i been reading um read a, a wonderful book about the troubles um, recently, um, the title of which escapes me now, and it's no longer on my bookshelf because I lent it out to somebody, um, which has been good. It, so it was kind of like an oral history of the Troubles, and specifically how it related to, um, 
uh, one particular, um, you know, person who had been abducted and, um, uh, you know, murdered uh, for being a um, an informant, fundamentally. So it was kind of surrounding that story, and um, I can actually find the title of the book at some point in time. But I always do that. I'll read a book, and then I'll give it to somebody immediately, and then want it back, and then not remember who I gave it to. So that happens all the time. But yeah, I've been trying to read a lot more during this time. Um, Alan Huck, bandmate, um, influence. My, my wisest and closest friend um, has referred to me a great deal of... Uh, you know, kind of work during this time as well. Records are in the landscape. Um, this book about John Cage and experimental music that I've really been loving, picking up and kind of, um, you know, will have had read through it, but I'm now in that process of reading it a second time by just kind of picking it up and turning to random pa- passages and sections. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of TV and media that I consume, otherwise, like, I don't watch a lot of TV. Uh, I have been watching the Jack Ryan TV show on Amazon Prime, which is so bad, but um, is very well put together in a bad way that just makes it entertaining to watch. So that's been, uh, I do like Tom Clancy in general, but that is a terrible TV show. Um, just finished watching the, the newest season of The Handmaid's Tale, which, is, which has been pretty great. Um, and then in terms of movies, like I, I love just bad movies. So like... Anytime there's like something like Zack Snyder's like uh, Army of the Dead or something like that goes up on streaming, I'm like, all right, I'm in. I'm watching that. That's gonna be my Thursday night. So yeah, I'm I'm not the biggest film guy in terms of like you know kind of taking films seriously for sure. For um, bad films that don't take themselves too seriously, I don't know if I've already mentioned this on this podcast, but I'll mention it every episode if I have to. Uh, if you haven't seen it already, watch Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh, yes. Such a good film. Have you seen it? I have. It was a long time ago. Yes, but I have seen it. Such a dumb film. Yes. But so good. Rucker Hauer is actually in that, right? Yeah, which one was he? He's the hobo. Yeah, the titular hobo. I haven't found a film that actually strikes me in the same way as that did. Apart from maybe They Live. Of course, They Live is uh, wildly more famous and influential. Sure. But yeah, Hobo with a Shotgun, really, really good film. I love movies like that. And that's always like a, a perennial like self-defense thing to do is like, we're on tour, you know, it's the day off. Like we just drove, we're at, you know, our buddy's house in Des Moines, Iowa, who we're staying with that night. And we will just pick it Patrick will pick out the worst movie that we've ever all collectively heard of and then we will just have the best time watching it so we are are absolute we love bad cinema for sure <laughs> if you've got any time after this podcast like where whenever you've got a bit of downtime if you can think of a few to chuck my way that would be much appreciated absolutely I would love to oh perfect okay and um we're gonna move into the closing question of this podcast that I do for everyone. If you're if you're not feeling it, you're not feeling it. No, this is actually the only question that I that I read from what you had kind of sent me for the notes. <laughs> so it's it's the only one I'm prepared for. Oh, perfect. Okay. Uh, yeah. What's your favorite dead dog uh, in the media? Real, rendered, CGI, whatever. Tell me about your favorite dead dog. So the one. Uh, so I have like probably two answers for this. Um, the one that immediately comes to mind is in the weird propaganda scene in Starship Troopers. Um, 
have you ever seen that movie? No, but I need to. It's been on the list for ages. Okay. Oh my God. Paul Verhoeven, incredible movie. There is a scene. So it's like throughout the movie that it it kind of presents these like um, like you know kind of it's like the internet network of this weird you know kind of fascist American or actually no it's not even American it's like a global government of the U.S. or of the entire Earth. And globalist. yeah, a globalist government. Yeah, very George Soros kind of thing. Um, <laughs> has these little like propaganda pieces that kind of go throughout it, and like the, whenever like I think of dead dog, this is the one that immediately comes to mind because it's a it's a dog that's like dead under a boulder, and and it looks a little cartoonish, but it's also pretty gruesome. And then it cuts to um, you know who is probably the dog's owner saying the only good bug is a dead bug because they're fighting giant bugs is like. The, the threat, the existential threat to humanity within the movie. So that one came to mind immediately. So how, do, how does it turn into a dog? You're saying the only good bug is a dead bug. How, how does that... Yes, so, so the, the, the dog was killed by bugs. So the dog oh, is like, is, okay. is dead underneath like a rock, I think, or something like that. And then the camera pans to the dog's owner. And then, and then he says that or something like along those lines. Or kill them all or something like that. I don't know, along those... So yeah, exactly. But, you know, but but it's cool because um, it's it's obviously like a very it's framed as like this ridiculous over the top propaganda piece, you know, kind of as part of the movie. But I would say like then when I thought about it a little bit more, I would say my favorite dead dog, not exactly a dog. It's more of a wolf. But in Princess Mononoke, when when the wolf's head is cut off and then it briefly comes back to life and it bites off that lady's arm, that is probably my my favorite um dead dog in media without a doubt i do really enjoy studio ghibli films and yeah oh i love them it's great yeah okay excellent well this has actually been a really really fun podcast thank you very much for your time yeah thank you so much i really appreciate you having me on my pleasure before we go do you want to just tell the people where they can find you um just give them a quick summary of the stuff you've been working on recently your bands etc etc yeah totally so i mean if you had wanted to hear any of you know kind of my own work outside of self-defense family just look for uh twin sisters or uh the visitors on spotify would probably be where i would you know kind of recommend to check that out um don't follow me on twitter it's really stupid so yeah 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 don't bother with that Cool. And of course, there's for anybody who hasn't listened to Self-Defense Family before, but is for some reason listening to this podcast, um, make sure you listen to Self-Defense Family. There are about fucking 30 records out there. If you don't like one, just try another one until you do like one. Uh, you'll get there eventually. I think that's a good a good tack. Yeah. <laughs> this has been Imagination Land, Friend to Friend in the End Time, Episode 8. Thanks again to Chris for joining me. Wherever you are, I hope you're chilling. Peace. All right, right on, man.